Amen. Okay, we continue in our sermon series, The Elephant in the Room. And today's question is, is Jesus the only way? That's the question. So David's going to uh, read the text for us. And uh, David, daylight savings time, it is spring forward. (laughs) You lose an hour. Write that down. No. (laughs) I'll remember that for the next one. It's still got one more service. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thank you, David. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, again, Jesus, we pray that you would teach us as you taught your first disciples in this text that was just read by David. Lord, may we understand it and know what it means to live by it. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So this text is one of the most frequently read, uh, one of the most beloved texts in, in all of Scripture. In our North American culture, when a person passes away, a person that we love, it's not unusual for people to say, uh, he went to a better place. She went to a better place. And those kinds of things are said, whether the person believed in Jesus or not, it sounds comforting. That kind of language in our culture, it actually comes from John chapter 14. When we pause to consider this statement, they've gone to a better place, we realize that it's actually a massive affirmation. We're talking about eternal destiny, so the stakes could not be higher. Today, many would say that uh, we really don't need Jesus to get to that better place. One of the most common affirmations in our culture is this, all religions lead to God. Basically, they all teach the same thing. For example, some would use the analogy of a mountain to talk about this. Everyone that's on a religious path, all of these different paths, they're actually all heading to the top of the mountain. They're all going in the same direction. You may have different views, different landscapes along the way, but everyone's going to the top. Doesn't that sound nice? It sounds so inclusive, so tolerant. In reality, it makes a far-reaching, absolute truth claim. First of all, the analogy implies that all religions actually want their adherents to get to the top. Secondly, someone with a greater vantage point Someone off the mountain, probably above the mountain, can see the whole mountain and can make this 
absolute claim. So, who is that person that is off the mountain and can see the whole thing? Who is the person with the greater vantage point? Who can see everything? So, instead of denying exclusive truth claims, what this analogy actually does is it makes the most astounding truth claim. The person who says all religions lead to God, they basically all teach the same thing, claims to have the greater vantage point, claims to be off the mountain seeing the whole thing, seeing reality correctly. So it is not a humble position. It's actually a very arrogant position. The analogy assumes that all religions fundamentally believe the same thing. They all believe in a better place, and they all want to get there. It doesn't take world religions seriously. So let's just consider this very briefly. Hinduism sees its many gods as manifestations of the one force or flame of the universe, Brahman. The goal of Hinduism is not to reach God, but rather liberation from the cycle of reincarnation. So one can merge with that one force that unites all things, Brahman. When one merges with Brahman, the illusion of the individual, unique self disappears. Buddhism is an attempted reformation of Hinduism. For Buddhists, God does not exist. There is no God to reach. The goal of Buddhism is to end suffering. Suffering ends when desire ends. When desire ends, one ceases to be a person and reaches nirvana. Nirvana means to blow out, to extinguish. You're gone. Islam teaches that there is a personal God. He does exist. Allah, however, cannot be reached. After death, all people will face judgment. Allah will decide their fates. Those who manage to reach the afterlife will enter into paradise, a paradise full of pleasure. But that paradise full of pleasure is not where God is. God is wholly unattainable. So the truth is this. The ways of the world's religions are fundamentally different. For a person to say all religions lead to God, they basically all teach the same thing, is completely in error. It is not true. They are fundamentally different. Buddhists don't believe the mountain exists at all. <laughs> Hindus want to get off the mountain. Muslims don't believe they can reach the summit. So if the world religions, if they disagree at such a fundamental level, someone's on the wrong path, someone's on the wrong mountain, or not even on the mountain. They're not all striving to reach the top of the mountain. They don't share the same goal. 
Well, someone might protest and say, but, well, each religion at least has part of the truth. They're all partially true. Their, their mountain path, it reveals some truth. Or what many people say today, well, your religion is true for you. My religion is true for me. You have a bit of truth. I have a bit of truth. Hey, it's all good. And it sounds tolerant and respectful and, and sincere. Those who say these things will often employ the Hindu analogy of an elephant. There it is. There's the true elephant in the room. The elephant is pink. <laughs> the story goes like this. So there are six blind men, and they come upon an elephant. One man, grabbing the trunk, says, hey, this creature is just like a snake. A second man is holding onto a leg, and he says, no, this creature is like a tree trunk. A third blind man is rubbing his hand on the side of the elephant, and he says, no, this creature is like a big flat wall. A fourth is holding the ear and says, no, it's like a fan. A fifth grabs the tusk and says, no, this creature's like a spear. And the sixth grabs the tail and says, no, it's like a rope. Each blind man feels only a part of the elephant. No one envisions the whole elephant. So in the same way, each religion feels or sees, holds part of the truth. Part of the truth about spiritual reality. No one has a compre comprehensive vision of the truth. Now an interesting question for those who use this analogy is, where do you see yourself in the analogy? Are you grabbing at the tail or the trunk? Or are you the person that is off the elephant, above the elephant, seeing the whole thing? Are you blind or are you not blind? If you are the one who says each religion holds to part of the truth, has some truth, partial truth, then you are that person that is above the elephant. You are the one seeing all of reality. You're complaining to have superior knowledge of spiritual reality. So in a sense, if you make this exclusive truth claim that every religion has part of the truth, then you are claiming to be godlike. The claim that truth is just a matter of perspective is simply pride masquerading as humility. The ways of the world religions are not all true. They can't be. The, the elephant analogy implies that sin sincerity is enough. Just be sincere. If we believe something with all our heart, well, that's good enough. If my daughter is looking at the elephant and she says to me, Daddy, it's a rope. What will I say to her? Close enough, honey. It's a rope. Will I say that? If she says to me, Daddy, 
it's a fan. Will I say to her, yep, way to go, honey, good enough, it's a fan. I'll say, no, honey, it's an elephant. It's not a fan. You see, the elephant analogy actually reveals that all six men were wrong, absolutely wrong. The elephant is not a tusk, a snake, a fan, a wall, a tree trunk, a rope, not even close. Not even close. So if you're sincerely wrong, you're still very, very wrong. The world religions, they actually contradict each other. The basic rules of logic tell us that you cannot make contradictory statements and then say they're all true at the same time. You just can't. For example, it's impossible to say that God doesn't exist and that he does exist at the same time. That makes no sense. It's impossible to say that you know, spiritual reality, ultimate reality is a, an impersonal force, and at the same time say that, no, ultimate reality is a personal God. You can't say those two things at the same time and believe both of them to be true. You see, when we're talking about faith and religion, we're talking about things that really matter. We're talking about life and death. The stakes are really high, and it's really important to speak truth. If you have a terminal illness... You don't just want to talk to a sincere neighbor or a sincere friend, no matter how sincere they are. You want to talk to someone who understands and can actually help you. So let's go back to Jesus' words in John chapter 14. What was Jesus trying to say? John chapter 14, verse 1. Not trying to say. What was he saying? <laughs> John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way... To where I'm going. Jesus uses a metaphor in these verses. He talks about the Father's house and it has many rooms. The Latin translation of that word rooms is mansionis, and that word mansionis obviously found its way into the Latin Vulgate. And from the Latin Vulgate, it was translated into English. And so, in some of the older English versions, like the King James Version, you have the word mansions. That word mansiones, it refers to way stations. It refers to temporary dwellings. And so some people would argue that when we're on this spiritual journey, we're going from one spiritual plane to another. We're going from one way station to another. We're all earning our way to heaven. We're going through this process of reincarnation, and eventually, hopefully, we will reach perfection. And we say hopefully because there's always the possibility of messing up and going backwards, regressing. This is a gross misinterpretation of these verses. This is not what Jesus was saying. The original word for rooms means permanent dwelling places. Permanent dwelling places. 
The language that Jesus is using here in these verses, it's, it comes out of bridegroom, uh, bride language of the first century. In his day, a betrothed son, so a son engaged to be married, would go back to his father's house and he would prepare a room at his father's estate for his bride, where he and his bride would live permanently. So in this context, Jesus has been talking about going to the Father's house. Going to the Father. He will go before His disciples to do what? To prepare rooms for Him. His disciples are His bride. Jesus is going with a sense of purpose. He will make the rooms ready, and so that's why they should not be troubled. Jesus prepares the better place. He prepares heaven for His disciples, for His bride. That's what he's saying. In the context, Jesus is very aware of the opposition. The religious opposition is mounting. He knows that he's going to his death. He knows that the agony of the cross is before him. He knows that his time with his disciples is short. So he tells them he's going to depart, and where he's going, they cannot go. That's why they're troubled. In the context, he says that one of his disciples will betray him. Peter will deny him three times. And so you can imagine the room where Jesus is with his disciples. It's filled with fear and uncertainty and confusion. The disciples believe that they are on the brink of catastrophe. Maybe you're in a moment where you are confused. (laughs) You're afraid. You are uncertain. The revelation of truth, the truth of God, it often comes in a moment of fear, uncertainty, confusion. Jesus comes with words of comfort in this context of fear. He says, basically, trust in God, trust also in me, I will get you to the Father's house. Heaven is going to be an awesome coming together of Jesus, the bridegroom, and his bride, his disciples. With that language, the disciples would have imagined what they would have had in their minds is a father's estate, a a, a compound where there's a central courtyard and there are many rooms, and so it's a place of extended family, of secure relationship and joy. But Thomas has a question. John chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Nothing wrong with asking. He has a sincere question. He's not sure of the way. And his trouble, his uncertainty, it paves the way for further revelation. And here we come to a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. We followers of Jesus have not developed a way to God on our own. We don't make that claim. We don't see ourselves as being superior in knowledge. We've not found God on our own. We followers of Jesus, we don't see ourselves as those ones who are above the elephant or above the mountain seeing everything. We admit that we were born blind. But we do believe that God has spoken. We do believe that God has revealed himself. British theologian Michael Green has written this. We do not need a religion, but a revelation. 
Unlike other holy books, the Bible does not record the story of human beings in search of God, but of God in search of human beings. Do you see the difference? We don't need another religion. We need a revelation. The Bible does not record the story of human beings in search of God, but of God in search of human beings. We followers of Jesus simply believe that God in His infinite grace and mercy has reached out to us through Jesus. God has spoken. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, He has made Him known. You see, Jesus' entire life was a reflection of the Father's heart, of His character. Jesus made God known. He revealed who He is. Christianity is the only faith that brings these things together. One, that God is personal. Two, that God has reached out to humanity. Three, that humanity through Jesus can reach the Father's house. The only one. There is no other. Do you realize that? how good the news is that we have to share. Christianity, let me say that again, the only faith that preaches or proclaims that God is personal, that God has reached out to humanity, and that through Jesus we can get to the Father's house. Jesus has revealed the way, and He did that in history. He doesn't prepare, he doesn't present a, here's a religious path where you can reach God, disciples. That's the blind man's way. Instead, in response to Thomas' question, Jesus, how can we know the way? What does he say? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Jesus' statement, it speaks to the great aspirations of humankind to know the way, to find the truth, to to have life now and beyond the grave. It's an exclusive truth claim. That's undeniable. It is. But it's not His disciples who make the claim. It's Jesus. Jesus makes this claim. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus doesn't just point to a way. He not only blazes a trail which we are to try to follow, rather He says, I am the only way to God. It's a shocking claim, especially in today's tolerant, politically correct world. It's a shocking claim. Jesus says quite clearly, people do not come to the Father through religions, through rituals, through creeds, through good attempts, through good deeds, no matter how spiritual they are, no matter how sincere they are. To understand the exclusiveness of Jesus' claim, we need to ask the question, how did Jesus prepare the way to the many rooms? How did he do it? Well, it cost him his life. 
Jesus prepared the way to the Father through his death. If there were other paths to God, if all religions led to God, if any religious path would do, there would be absolutely no reason for Jesus to come, be one of us, die in our place, be resurrected from the dead, and ascend to the right hand of the Father. No reason. None at all. The good news of Jesus would be gutted. Jesus is not a partial truth. He's not a bit of the truth. One truth among many. He is the truth. He's the truth of God, the supreme revelation of God. He is ultimate reality, defined. Jesus made God known. He hasn't given us the option of saying he's just one more way. He's partial truth. Before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Jesus, he made a startling confession. John 18, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? That's the question of our age, right? Many in our world would resonate with Pilate's question, what is truth anyways? Oxford Dictionary's 2016 word of the year was post-truth. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that truth does not belong to our time. Post-truth communicates that for us, truth is irrelevant. What it means is that we can just shape our conversations based on how we think and our feelings in the moment. There is no objective truth. We make truth. And in this shadowy world where nothing is verifiable, where there is no objective truth, people just message and re-message each other with little concern for truth and with so much fake news, what is truth anyways? <laughs> All we have is thoughts, feelings, maybe some influence, and for a few, power. Jesus declared before Pilate, the Roman governor, that his purpose was to reveal not a truth, but the truth. We followers of Jesus, we believe in absolute truth, not just our created truth. I personally am not following Jesus because I think it's a good idea. I would never follow Jesus if I thought that it was something that I had come up with. I heard a secular philosopher say this week, and when he said it, I just cheered. He said, truth is embedded in who God is. You cannot separate God and truth. And I just said, amen. Truth is exclusive. It excludes everything false. You cannot say, here's truth and here's falsehood, and they're the same. That's an absurd statement. What was Jesus' ultimate answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? What was his answer? 
his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. A concrete event in history 2,000 years ago. And if we study concrete history, the events which have actually happened, we find there is more evidence for Jesus than for any other historical figure in all of history. So you can choose to not believe in Jesus, but then wipe out all of history. There is plenty of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We don't just live on a whim. I hope it's true. What we celebrate in a few weeks at Easter, boy, I really hope that Jesus did rise from the dead. No, there is lots of reason to believe that Jesus lived among us, that he went to the cross and died, and that he rose from the dead. That's why we put our faith in him. One of the reasons. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. In the Gospel of John, you have seven I am statements that communicate the identity of who Jesus is. The first four talk about Jesus offering life. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the, um, sorry, my mind just went blank. I am the bread of life. And then, I am the light of the world, the light of life. He says, I'm the door to life. I'm the good shepherd who offers abundant life. And then with his fifth statement, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He declares that he not only gives life, he is life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's John chapter 11. The ultimate sign of Jesus being the life was his resurrection. Why? Because, because he was the life of God, death couldn't hold him down. Through his death and resurrection, he bridged the gulf between God and us, sinful humanity. If we use the analogy of the mountain again, Jesus blazed the trail to the top of the mountain. He went right into the Father's house, and he's waiting for us. He has blown open the doors to the Father's house. He has made the way. And if we trust in him, we can live with the sure hope that we will be with him forever. He will get us to the peak. We can't get to the rooms without Jesus. We can't get there following our own way. Putting together our own spirituality. Making up a way that seems enlightened or wise to us. Jesus is the only way. Some years ago, I participated in a 10-kilometer run. It was a cold morning. And uh, some of us who were running that morning, we decided to go into a church, a cathedral, arguably the most beautiful cathedral in that city. And we went into the cathedral not because we were so spiritual, but because we were just cold. <laughs> and the church was heated. So on that frosty morning, the pastor got up and he said, he quoted John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he said this, I was at an interreligious gathering the other day, and a Buddhist, Buddhist priest got up and, and read these words, and the Buddhist priest said, 
These words of Jesus are true. These words are true because Jesus shows us the way to be self-giving. The way of the divine is to be self-giving. There you go. My running mate was a new Christian. He was a former Sikh. And when he heard the pastor say those words, he just blurted out, that was so lame. Was it lame? Was the pastor right? Was the Buddhist priest right? Is the way of Jesus to be self-giving? Is that what it's all about? You see, my Sikh running mate, former Sikh, now a follower of Jesus, he met Jesus in prison. He was struggling with drug addiction. He didn't need to know about another way. He didn't know, need to know about a way of being self-giving. He didn't need to know that he should try just a bit harder. He needed to know the way. <laughs> he needed to know the way to the Father. He needed to know the truth that sets free. He needed to know the life that could transform his heart and his mind and heal him. He needed to know the Jesus who could forgive his sin, of which he had plenty, that could gift him with eternal life. He didn't need to know about just one more religious path on the mountain. What the pastor said was absolutely false. False. My friend needed to know a person Jesus, the way. Jesus didn't come to help enlightened people just see a bit more. That's not why he came. He came to open the eyes of the blind. <laughs> Jesus didn't claim to have found the way to God. No, he said, I am the way. He didn't claim to have learned more truth about God. No, he said, I am the truth. He didn't say to his disciples, hey, I've found a bit of life for you here. This is a good idea. No, he said, I am the life. He, he came to make dead people live. You see, the way is a person. And his name is Jesus. In fact, the essence of heaven is to know Jesus, to know the Father, to be with them. Look at what Jesus says in John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this experience of knowing God, it begins when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we receive what He has done on our behalf. If we're on another path, just trying to find our way, maybe we are sincere, but we're tired, Jesus says to you today, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
If you want to come to the Father's house, then receive me. Receive what I have done on your behalf. I offer you forgiveness, new life. I will get you to the Father's house. So if you're here and you have never had the opportunity to actually receive what Jesus has done for you and begin to follow His way, the way, then I invite you to pray with me. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus this morning, then pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for going my own way, separate from you. Thank you for being the way. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I turn to you today for forgiveness of my sin and the gift of new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. I really need you. I surrender my life to you. Fill me with your spirit. Make me the person that you created me to be. Father, I thank you for adopting me into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, please talk to the person that you came with or you can come forward to talk to me, go to the prayer center. There's lots of people that would love to encourage you in your journey. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time, join us at the Lord's table today. Uh, the Lord's Supper it is for all who follow Jesus. And we don't come to the table based on our own righteousness we come to the table based on what Jesus has done. Jesus bought us back. <laughs> he redeemed us through his death and resurrection. And when we come to the table, we celebrate that. Jesus, by dying in our place, he took all of our sin upon himself, all of our rebellion, and he restores us to our original purpose to know God and to live for his glory. As we place our faith in Jesus, by God's grace, through faith in Him, we are made righteous. We are justified before God. We are not here trying to earn our way to heaven. We have been justified. We've been forgiven. Amazing. Sometimes we don't forgive ourselves. God has forgiven us. All our sin. We are now in relationship with God. The Holy Spirit has been sent to abide in us. And we are assured of the Father's house. We are assured of heaven. And so when we come to the table, we're filled with joy, we're filled with gratitude. And it's a moment to remember who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. Let's bow our heads for a moment of silent prayer.
So, Father, again, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for coming, for giving your life for our salvation before we ever had a thought about you. That's amazing grace. We don't deserve to be your children, but God, you chose us (laughs) and you redeemed us and you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit. The guarantee of our resurrection. We will see you, Jesus, face to face as we sang earlier. What a tremendous hope. And we will be with you forever. Forgive us for when we stray, when we set our eyes on other idols, or when we think far too much about ourselves and we don't love you as we should. We don't love our neighbor as we should. Forgive us. We humble ourselves before you and we just say, Lord, forgive us, renew us. We want to follow you and be faithful to you. So, Lord, have your way in our lives. We just say thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. On uh, the night when he was betrayed, Jesus, he took bread, he gave thanks, and then he, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's partake together. After supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. So Jesus, we thank you for your body broken for your blood shed so that we could be one with you, one with the Father, one body. Lord, may we love you with all that we are, heart, mind, soul, strength. May we love our neighbor as ourselves. May we live as one body, your people reflecting your glory wherever you take us this week. You shed your blood that our sins might be forgiven, that we might receive the gift of eternal life. And so, Lord, may we as your people live with this sure hope, even though we live in a world where there are struggles and there are trials almost every day that you are with us and you will never leave us. 
And so we thank you. Lead us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We will meet our bridegroom. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we declare that. We, his bride, will meet him. We will see him face to face, and we shall be as he is. What a hope. Let's sing.